This episode is going to be a real challenge. This is an experiment. I'd like to directly talk about thinking critically about things. But that's a huge topic, and there are many different techniques as well as situations. So I'm not even going to try to make this all-inclusive. Instead, I'm just going to focus on a very small area of critical thinking, and maybe if it works out, I'll, I'll make other episodes that go into other areas. And for the record, there is no single right way to critically think. I'm going to mention techniques that I use, and hopefully everyone won't be listening saying, well, duh. I'm a little worried that if you're listening to this, you probably already know this information. So if you find it useful, drop me a line. If you find it unbelievably useless, drop me a line. Like I said, this is an experiment, and if it's successful, maybe I'll do some more. I'm not planning on changing the format of the show, just maybe do something a little different every once in a while. Since this is so experimental, if this is your first episode, please give some other episodes a try, if this ain't your bag of tea, and then give me the feedback as a result. So I guess I should define what I mean by critical thinking. This isn't easy to find, and smarter people than me have come up with more exacting definitions. So for now, I'll just say that, to me, critical thinking boils down to thoroughly analyzing information for making decisions. It's the thoroughly part that's hard to define. What is thorough to one person is merely glancing to another. So my goal is to suggest some bullet items that will constitute thoroughness. I'm not going to hit everything. And remember, this is just a test. So where would you even begin with how to think critically? I'd say let's start at the beginning with judging the information you receive. This is whether you're reading an article on endangered soap opera stars, listening to a friend tell you about his drunken weekend, or watching a special on the Discovery Channel about the migrant patterns of bears trapped on flowing icebergs. Isn't there a saying about the price of freedom is eternal vigilance? The same can be said of critical thinking. It's something that you can't turn off. Well, you can, but that defeats the purpose. So it's something that once you start doing, you keep doing it all the time, regardless of whether it's a national news article or a gossip from work. For this episode to work, we're going to need some examples. So I'm going to give three examples that I can refer back to later. And I'll make up some new ones as I go along. Maybe these are true. Maybe they're complete lies. <laughs> but for the purpose of discussion, let's assume that you have equal reverence for Elvis Presley and Alexander Graham Bell, holding them both high on a pedestal as well as having multiple coffee table books professing their greatness. Note, the beliefs expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of logically critical. So one morning as you back out of your garage on your way to work, your neighbor's doe-eyed wife runs up to your car window and informs you that Elvis Presley's body was disinterred yesterday and DNA tests confirm it's really him. Despite what you've always believed, she says, the king is truly dead and seems to have contracted a serious foot fungus during his post-life existence. Later, while discussing sangria recipes, your mom tells you that she read in her bathroom reader that in the 1950s, the American CIA paid Iranian citizens to protest their own prime minister in an effort to discredit him all for the purposes of controlling oil. She says that something like 50,000 people were paid as much as $1,000 a piece to protest. After lunch, the guy who's beaten you in every summer camp contest since third grade sends you an email informing you he has just learned that Alexander Graham Bell bribed someone at the patent office to predate his application for the telephone. It was really invented by Elisha Gray, or maybe Johann Philip Rees, and the BBC has papers to prove it. You've just found out three new pieces of information. Two you're fairly passionate about, and one you, you merely find interesting. You don't have time to verify this information, and frankly, you're, you're too lazy to even try. How are you supposed to take in this information? Do you accept it as fact, or put your hand to your ears and say, La la la, I can't hear you, la la la. Now you, the listener, 
may know more about these topics, but, but forego that for a moment and consider if what if all you know is what was just said. So what's the first step? The most important thing is to acknowledge you may be wrong. I say this because it, it sucks being wrong, but people often are. It's a fact of life and you can't learn the truth if your judgment is clouded by visions of glory and the inability to admit errors. Humans are quite fallible. So when you learn something that conflicts with what you already know, first ask yourself if it's possible that your knowledge is the one that's wrong. Consider that it's possible that your belief is wrong. You don't have to change your mind, just consider it. That's the first step to thinking critically. With respect to Elvis, you know he's not dead because you saw him battle a mummy with Ossie Davis just a few years ago. But then again, that, that might have been a bad movie with Bruce Campbell. As for the CIA, you've always figured the government was corrupt, so, so this seems plausible to you. Related to Alexander Bell, you know he was the greatest American inventor in history, and he would never do anything dishonest. But ultimately, you must admit to yourself that you didn't know him personally, and you only know what you've read in books written decades after his death. And for no apparent reason, suddenly Jesus comes to mind. So you've acknowledged that your previous knowledge may be wrong. What's next? After that, you need to separate the excitement of the deliverer from the information itself. This is usually only an issue when you already believe the information. Basically, don't apply the person's credibility and excitement with that of the information's credibility. So in our second example, your mom says the CIA paid people. And you, for the most part, accepted that. But then she says that something like 50,000 people were involved and they were paid $1,000 apiece. Now the something like should be a flag that she doesn't really know and is maybe just making up a number. She's probably not lying per se, and she's not trying to be deceptive, but she simply doesn't remember and is trying to give you the same sense of awe that she had. While the gist of the story may be correct, maybe her numbers are off. Plus that, that $1,000 and $1,950 seems awfully high to march in a parade. This raises an important side note. Any piece of information can be partially correct. You don't have to accept it whole only. You can discard parts that sound fishy. Information is not an all-or-nothing prospect. If I tell you dinosaurs once roamed the Earth, but later moved to Mars and got too big and fat and turned to oil, well, you, you see how I'm telling a partial truth. Who's ever heard of a fat dinosaur? But back to my main point. I'm not saying you can't trust anyone. But realize that with most information, the person that gives it to you probably isn't the one that actually knows. They're just a messenger. So you're not saying they're stupid or insulting them, at least not intentionally, if you question their message. Your mom wasn't really there and is just repeating the article she read. Now by separating the excitement from the news bearer, you've immediately flagged some bits of questionable, not false, information. This merely means you may want to consider this part further. So now what? Next, consider that all sources of information are dubious, or at least treat them as such. But who is the source of this information? Well, with the Elvis thing, directly to you, it's your neighbor's wife. But she's just a messenger. She hasn't revealed where she got this information yet. So you ask her, where did she hear that? She says, the TV. Whoa, that just gave this story about six times more credibility. The only more credible source is the internet where nobody lies. My sarcasm detector is off the charts. That's not really a source. That's a delivery system for a source. So you press harder. Where on TV? 
She replies, it was on a news update during a Spongebob commercial break on Nickelodeon. At this point, you only know the source is your neighbor and a network for children. Could the dedicated, determined, dependable reporters at Nickelodeon be lying or simply joking? Could they be misinformed themselves? Yes, all these are possible. And it could be 100% true. So another problem comes into play. Rarely do we get our information directly from the true source. It's usually a chain. In this case, the girl isn't the ultimate source, and probably neither is Nickelodeon. So you need to at least question if this information has broken down along the way. You can't, and shouldn't, say the information is bad or false. But it is separated by several levels, which at its worst means you probably shouldn't just accept it. But again, it's not necessarily wrong. But the further you get from the source, the more likely it is to have errors. Purple Monkey Dishwasher. Your mom's story about the CIA is from the Bathroom Readers Institute. This is an actual publication that has researchers attempt to verify stories before they print it. This lends some credibility. But then again, you realize that they simply compile information from other sources. They're kind of like Wikipedia in that I don't think they try to obtain new information and instead only repeat what others have said. This leaves you in the same place as the Elvis thing. In this case, the source isn't necessarily hands-down reliable, but neither is it unreliable. Last on our sample list is the telephone thing. First, you're being told by a guy you hate, so that's bad. And he's saying it's coming from the BBC. Well, this is a direct news organization, and we all know that news organizations never make mistakes. But what if they're being lied to? Maybe they've been given falsified information. Here you could probably conclude that the source is reasonably reliable, but this is not discounting that the news organization itself may have been duped. Do you see the pattern? Really, there are very few sources of information that you can directly rely upon. I mean, at some point, we all have to trust someone. But by that same token, have you known somebody that never did you any wrong, including your parents or spouse or children? Just don't give news organizations absolute trust. Well, we've got what I would call questionable sources. But let's move on. What's the next bullet item? Well, now that you know the source, there's a very important question to ask yourself. Is the source actually capable, or likely, of knowing the information they're reporting? Not do they claim to have it, or do they actually have it, but are they truly even capable of having it? Let me give you an example. What if an Egyptian archaeologist claims to have found the very first hieroglyphics ever placed on a wall? What? There's no way you can know that. They might be the oldest we've ever found, but you can't know if they're the first until you get that time machine working. And then you'll have to worry about whether or not they were planted by another time traveler. That's too hypothetical. Let me use a real-world example. There's a statistic reported that states that the average person accidentally ingests some number of spiders in their sleep. I can't give you the exact number because... When I looked for it, I found it reported differently in several places. I found everything from one a year to two a month. My first thought was, how on earth would you determine that number? I can only think of one truly accurate method. Watch people sleep and see how many spiders climb into their mouth and don't climb back out. Now, aside from the logistics of requiring several cameras to capture different angles as most people toss around in their sleep, you've got to watch people sleep every night for months to make this assessment. To be accurate, you'd have to watch numerous people since people living in log cabins would be accessible to a larger quantity of arachnids than those living in, say, uh, high-rise buildings. And I haven't seen anything to suggest that the study discriminates between spiders, ants, millipedes, or cockroaches. I only hear spiders as if that's the only bug that will commit oral suicide at night. 
Now, I don't want to go into this too much, but I will say that this is a statistic that I believe is highly unlikely to be correct simply because I question the likelihood that the test was done for this. With statistics, I always ask, can you actually know this? So with respect to the Elvis thing, it, it's, that seems fairly knowable. I'm not saying whether or not it's accurate or not, just that it's knowable. With respect to the CIA thing, that's a little iffy. Even if the CIA did do this, I'm not certain they'd document it. But, but it's possible. And maybe a retired CIA agent wrote about it in their new book, How I Lowered Oil Prices in the 50s. The last one, I'm not so sure about. It happened over 100 years ago, and the argument consists of saying that one piece of information is wrong because another piece of information says so. Here's why I find this interesting. I'm being told by that bastard Hank... The patent office is corrupt. You can't believe them, but you can believe me. I've got documents that aren't corrupt that show that these other documents are corrupt. So I says to Hank, I says, How can I be sure your documents aren't corrupt? You've already acknowledged that corruption exists. What makes yours so beyond these errors? Honestly, I'm not trying to say who invented the telephone. Many people give credit to Antonio uh, Meucci, whatever the hell his name is, who created a working prototype ten years before Gray or Bell. I don't care. But it is my firm belief that after a certain amount of time, you cannot know things. For all we know, Bell completed the phone months before Gray, but Gray hired some thugs to place a horse head in Bell's bed. Bell, in fear of his life, stopped his work and started working on DC Current. Later, his wife actually filed the patent after being harassed by one of Gray's goons, and she got the patent office to predate it only because everyone at the time knew the truth. You never hear that version, do you? Many times, extortion simply isn't reported. Look around at politics today. Everyone has a different opinion. There's an entire episode in this, but but you really can't trust history. It's written by the victors. We can't agree today, so why do you think they agreed in the past? We can't even agree if a singer died 30 years ago, and one of the major points is a misspelling on his grave. Ooh! In this case, I put the bell issue as not really knowable. All I know is that people dispute the inventor, and I don't care either way. Am I saying that because something is old, we can't know about it? Well, no. But the older something gets, the less specifics we can know about it. How many times have you heard some historical truth refuted, such as the inventor of the telephone, the world being flat, or whether Jesus truly lived? Anyway, always ask yourself if the information really can be known by anyone. So what's next on this bullet item list? Ask yourself if there are any implications being made that might be erroneous. Wait, wait, let me put that another way. What assumptions are being made? Unfortunately, my cheesy examples don't lend themselves to illustrate this one. So I'll point out a real-world article. Last year, there was a dramatized documentary-like movie on ABC called The Path to 9-11. They basically made ex-President Clinton look bad. The Democrats told ABC not to show parts of it. I'm not trying to say anything one way or the other politically, nor am I siding with either party in this debate. I didn't actually read the article about this and instead only heard about it from friends and co-workers. But the interesting thing is that everyone that told me of this made the implication that the Democrats were trying to hide something. Honestly, I didn't watch the movie, don't know what it's about, and I don't know what the Democrats were trying to hide. What I thought was laughable is that every account I heard of this made out the Democrats to be evil for not wanting something to be seen. No one I know felt that ABC did anything wrong or even acknowledged that as a fictionalized documentary, maybe the questionable scenes weren't actually true. I'm not trying to root for either party in this case, but when someone accuses someone else, 
Either party could be wrong. The accusation is not proof of guilt. The natural denial of the accusation is not proof of innocence. If that were true, we wouldn't need a justice system. My point is, try to see if the information is biased. And if you can, separate yourself from that bias. So, next on my list is, what conclusion can you draw from this information? This isn't questioning the validity of the information. But, of the information you agree with, what can you conclude from it? From the Elvis story, if it's true, then, then he's dead. That is the conclusion right there. From the CIA issue, if it's true, then we can conclude that the CIA is a manipulative, greedy, and heartless organization bent on world domination. Or more accurately, we conclude that the CIA didn't want the Prime Minister in power. That's it. Was the CIA being shifty or even remotely dishonest? Possibly, but that information hasn't been given to us yet. It's implied, but... Paying people to protest isn't dishonest. People do it all the time today when you pay dues to any organization to lobby for stricter food standards and less insect parts in your peanut butter. If you think that's different, then consider maybe many people wanted to protest but couldn't afford to take the day off. Therefore, the CIA's payment gave them a way to go to something they wanted to go to anyway. You can't conclude that because they were paid that they disagreed with the CIA. I'm sure the CIA found sympathizers, or at the very least, people who just didn't care one way or the other. You haven't been given enough information to conclude that the CIA was acting immorally. Yet. For the telephone issue, you can conclude there's a question about who invented this device. That's it. With respect to this Democrat ABC thing, all you conclude is that two parties have a disagreement. You do not know which party is being dishonest, and it could be both. So after you rip the bias out of the information, look at it and see what it really tells you. Okay, what's next? Another thing to help absorb information correctly is to separate your dislike of the source from the information's validity. This doesn't always apply, obviously. But in my examples, I really hate Hank. He's shown me up in the egg toss and the apple bob too many times. But he is not the real source of this information. He's just a messenger. Nothing else, chalk it up to even a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. But there's more than just dislike for someone you know. What about when you disagree with the actual source or author or reporter and, and therefore think he or she is an idiot? To me, this is a red flag. Whenever my first inclination is to say that someone is an idiot, I immediately question myself. True, there are idiots in the world, to be sure. But it is my experience that usually, the person isn't really a jack-headed nanny with the brains of a sun-dried Barbie doll but instead they have, to what is them, a valid reason. And at the very least, you should make an effort to understand why they have their belief. So I try to ask myself, what would lead someone to that stupid conclusion? Sometimes I'm vindicated and I realize that person really just doesn't get it. But more often than not, I realize that it's a disagreement based on actual facts that are interpreted differently. Feel free to reference my Everyone's Stupid But Me episode for more on this topic. So after you've shot down that knee-jerk reaction because you don't like the source, what's next? Now this is very specific, but another important consideration is, is it the medium's intention to be factual? The hell does that mean? Okay, unfortunately it is my experience that most movies and TV shows are intended to be entertaining first and factual somewhere around fifth. Why is this important? I offer the possibility that at times in human history, movies, TV shows, and probably books that were structured as documentaries have become popular and have changed the perception of a great many people. These 
pseudo-documentaries may be based on truth, but have taken creative license to make for a more entertaining experience. My suggestion is to be on the lookout for this. An example? Well, I'm sure many people that managed to stay awake throughout all 37 hours of the Da Vinci Code actually believe it. Christ, it took longer to watch it than it did to read it. But maybe time just felt like it came to a halt due to its excessive reliance on protracted discussions in an assortment of ancient world museums. It's based on fact, but it's not really intended to be the basis for a new belief system. Another small example would be the movie Find Me Guilty, starring Vin Diesel. It's a comedy that claims to be based off of the actual testimony of an assortment of ancient mafia types in New York. It actually uses the word most of the testimony is taken from the actual court case. At this point, I'd like to remind all the passengers that 51% is most. Just be sure when you vest your beliefs in something that it's worthy and intentionally trying to be factual. Yet another bullet item is to avoid what I call the last one wins syndrome. This refers to the practice of giving the most recent version of information more weight. I heard Elvis is dead, so he must be. Then I heard he was alive. He must be alive. Wait, newsflash, he's still dead. If you learn of something that conflicts with something you already know, don't immediately assume the newer version is the correct version. I think this is obvious, but it's surprising how many times I hear people ignore this. Especially when the news involves celebrity gossip or some criminal on the run where daily reports are given which you get from your friends, each of them at various stages of knowing the latest truth. And lastly on my list is logistics. The new Oxford American Dictionary defines logistics as the detailed coordination of a complex operation involving many people, facilities, and supplies. Basically, how complex would this be to do? Then ask yourself, how likely is it to do that? To really oversimplify this, the practicality. I like to focus on logistics a lot, in past episodes, I often focus on logistical problems. It's an easy way to find problems and information. In our Elvis example, what logistical problems arise with digging up the king's corpse? Could they dig him up? Sure. I'm not certain I agree that his estate would want that. For one thing, his questionable liveliness is probably a factor in keeping him popular, and thus keeping some percentage of people traveling to Graceland each year. And then there's the fact that some people find it offensive to unearth their loved one's remains and have people gawk and poke at their anatomy, possibly taking souvenirs. <laughs> Look at Brandine, I done got me Elvis fingernail. So that's questionable. But let's say they did raise him from the ground. How did they verify it's him and not some Tennessean wino who was given an overdose of drugs and dumped in a casket? Well, the real Elvis has a daughter, Lisa Marie, so her DNA could be used for comparison purposes. Of course, she'd have to agree to it, but if she agreed to the disinterment, she'd probably agree to donating a sample of blood. So here's where things get interesting. How long does it take to compare DNA? Not that long, actually. You were told all this happened last night. It's possible to do the test that quickly, but for real results, you'd want to wait for an independent lab to confirm these results. To be really accurate, you'd want to do a blind test, meaning you wouldn't tell the lab that this is the blood of a famous sideburn singer. Thus, they probably wouldn't be in any rush, and it would take some time before they got the results. They're probably not going to come in at midnight to do this test. So it is with the simple addition of the word, yesterday, that to me makes the whole thing fall apart. It's possible, but, but I doubt that the test would be done that quickly. If nothing else, my informant probably has her timetable wrong. With respect to the CIA Iranian thing, it means you've got a handful of American men probably paying a native Iranian to 
to then hand out money to dozens, if not hundreds, of other Iranians, all for their cooperation to walk in the street with a sign. Sure, this is possible. Since the CIA is involved, I'll assume they've got ways to exchange large amounts of money and can locate sympathizers. But if they were trying to pay people that didn't inherently agree with them, well, if somebody wanted to pay me to stand in a crowd and lie, well, I think I'd just take their money and stay home. If I really disagree, I'm not going to do it. Lastly, who's the real inventor of the telephone? I honestly don't care. Go read about Antonio Miucci, whatever the hell his name is, and make up your own mind. He supposedly made a device, but it was, was never able to take it any further than his own house. So, to summarize. Whenever learning of information, a few steps can be taken to determine how truthful this information is. This is kind of a pre-screening filter, so you have less to verify later and have more free time for South Park reruns. So here they are. At number one, admit you may be wrong. Number two, separate the credibility and excitement of the deliverer from the information itself. Number three, consider all information sources are dubious. Four, ask yourself if the source is actually capable or likely of knowing the information. Five, try to locate any bias in the information so you can remove it. Six, ask if you can really draw a conclusion from this information. 7. Don't confuse your dislike of the source, including how stupid you think the author is, with the validity of the information. 8. Avoid the last one wins syndrome. And 9. Think of the logistics involved for this information to be true. So now you two can irritate your friends at every conversation just like I do as you question every damn thing they say when they're merely attempting to relay information to you. That can't be true. Where would you put the monkey? Of course, critical examination of information can be taken to extreme levels. Do you actually exist? How do you know life isn't really just a simulation in a Romulan holodeck? How do you know anything? What if all the textbooks are lying? I'll leave it up to you where to draw this line. So there you have it. Like I said, this was an experiment. Let me know if this was useful or mildly entertaining. Or if you're angry because I just wasted your time. If enough people find it useful, I can do more like this in numerous other areas like decision-making and muskrat hunting. Now, this episode was a little less humorous, but, but other episodes on similar topics don't have to be. I just chose something a little different this time. Lastly, thanks everyone for listening, and thanks for all the great feedback so far. I'm ecstatic and amazed that this entire logically critical endeavor has turned out so successfully. I'd also like to say that in my last episode, in response to the, some feedback, I was saying that this is as fast as I can get these things out. What I, I meant to say in there, and I just forgot to, was that I also wanted to point out how much that actually means to me that people want this to get out faster. Thank you. That actually really is quite touching. And if I weren't such a manly man, I, my eyes might be tearing up right now. Anyway, thank you again for listening, and have a bitchin' day. Visit our website at logicallycritical.com. Send feedback to podcast at logicallycritical.com. 